I am obviously not Roger. Uh, my beard's better than his, obviously, but don't tell him I said that. <laughs> um, but no, I'm not Roger. My name is Corey. I'm one of the life group leaders here at Restore. And man, I'm just so thankful to have this opportunity today. And before I get started, I just want to take a couple seconds to give honor where honor is due. And I know Roger's not here this week. He is preaching at another church. But Roger, man, if you ever listen to this sermon, I just want you to know from the bottom of my heart, I am so thankful for all that you've done for me and all that you've done for my family and for this church and for this city. And I just appreciate all the work that you do for us. And I'm just thankful for this opportunity that you've given me today. And, and, and sorry about the, the beer joke, but, you know, sometimes the, the truth hurts. But anyways, before we get started today, would you all do me a huge favor? Would you just turn to the person sitting next to you and tell them, don't settle? That's right. Don't settle. I know that might be a little confusing. We just saw that bumper video with the words contentment on it, but we're going to get there, I promise. Just, just stick with me. And so today we're, we're kicking off a, a brand new series. We're going to be studying one of the most popular chapters in the entire Bible. And you've probably heard of Psalm 23 before, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. And we're going to be studying this chapter over the next three weeks. Today we're specifically going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. And then next week, Roger's going to cover verses 3 and 4, and then he's going to wrap it up the following week with verses 5 and 6. But like I said, today we're going to get started with verses 1 and 2, so you can follow along on the Restore app, you can follow along on the YouVersion app. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and flip it open to Psalm 23. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles kind of staggered throughout the auditorium under the chairs. You can grab one of those and use it to follow along today, and then feel free to keep that and take it home. That'll be our gift to you. But like I said, we're going to kick it off today. We're just going to read through these verses really quick. We're going to put them on the screen as well. So this is Psalm 23, verses 1 and 2. And it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. And so I kind of want to just kick it off today by just getting a little background for Psalm 23. And most historians and scholars all agree that King David wrote these verses. And, but the thing they can't agree on is when in his life he wrote these verses. There's not any context in the verses as to when he could have written them with other psalms. Sometimes it says in the heading when he wrote the psalm. But for this psalm, there, there's none of that. And historians and theologians, they have no idea when David wrote it. And so me and all of my wisdom and knowledge decided it'd be a great idea to try to put myself into David's shoes and figure out when he could have written this psalm. And, and, and y'all, can I just tell you, that was probably a, a huge mistake at first, because just reading through David's life, it, it raised a lot more questions than, than it gave answers. But as I kind of struggled through that and read through David's life, it, it raised those questions, but they were, they were good questions. And God helped me kind of answer those questions. And that's what I want to do with our time today. I want to kind of try to put ourselves into David's shoes and, and see what he walked through and, and try to figure it out, you know, if we were David, when would we have written these verses? And so we're introduced to David in the Bible at, at a time for Israel when they're going through this huge change in their leadership style for the entire nation. And so we know, you know, the story of Moses. He led the people out 
of Egypt into, you know, towards the promised land, but he died before the nation got there. And then his right-hand man, Joshua, is the one who actually led the people of Israel into the promised land. And they had great victory, and they were established as a nation there, and they started prospering. But then Joshua passes away, and the nation's kind of left without a leader. And so they turn away from God, and they end up enslaved again. And then God raises up what's called a judge. You might have heard the book of Judges. And so he raises up a judge, which is kind of like a a military leader to set the people free. And then he raises up what's called prophets, who are like spiritual leaders, to point the people back to him. And as we read through the book of Judges, we see it's kind of like this cycle where the people of Israel turn away from God. They're enslaved, and then God raises up leaders, and they're set free. And it's like this vicious cycle. And so we're introduced to David at the time of a prophet named Samuel. And during the time of Samuel, the nation of Israel decides, we no longer want this leadership style for our nation. We want a king. Like all the other nations around us, we want our own king. And so eventually this guy named Saul is chosen as the first king of Israel. And what we know about Saul, he was like tall and strong and he looked like he'd be a a great leader and he's chosen to be the first king. But it turns out that he's actually a really bad leader who makes bad choices and is disobedient to God. And so God goes back to Samuel and says, hey Samuel, you know, I have rejected Saul as my king of Israel. He is no longer my king. I want you to go to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse, and there you're going to appoint my future king of Israel. And so Samuel listens, and he goes to Bethlehem, and he meets with the elders of the city, and he says, you know, hey, where does Jesse live? This is what's going on, and they tell him where Jesse lives, and the elders go before Samuel and tell Jesse what's going on, and, you know, they tell Jesse, gather all of your sons because Samuel is coming to anoint the next king of Israel. And so Jesse prepares this huge feast for Samuel, and he gathers all of his sons, and his sons are like updating their LinkedIn's, they're hitting the gym, they're making sure that they're ready for when Samuel gets there, and Samuel shows up on the scene, and uh, he sees Jesse's oldest son, and he says, oh, surely this must be the next king of Israel, because once again, he's like tall and strong and looks like he's a great leader, and God says to Samuel, no, 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 Samuel, don't look at his outward appearance. Don't look at his height or things like that, because that's what people look at. They look at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. And so we know it's not the oldest son, and so Samuel moves on to the second oldest, and it's not him, and then the third oldest, and it's not him. And so he goes through seven sons like this. And you can imagine at this point that Samuel's probably pretty confused because, you know, Jesse was told, gather all of your sons. And God told Samuel, hey, one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king. And so he turns to Jesse in his confusion, and he's like, hey, Jesse, uh, do you happen to have any other sons? Like, I I thought you gathered all your sons. Do Do you have any other sons? And Jesse replies to Samuel and says, well, yeah, you know, there's, there's still the youngest, there's David, but I left him out in the fields with the sheep because there's no way he's going to be the next king of Israel. And so we're introduced to David at a point in his life where he's rejected by his own father. And I don't know if anyone here today can, can relate to that. Maybe you feel like you've been rejected by your father. Maybe he walked out on your family. Maybe he was never a part of your family, but If you were to put yourself in David's shoes, would you write these verses in Psalm 23 right here in his life? Because if I was being honest, I wouldn't. 
I mean, I would feel like I was lacking a, a good father, so there's no way I could write the words, you know, I lack nothing. And so I kind of struggled through this, and I was like, all right, let me just keep reading the story and, and try to figure this out. And we see that Samuel, you know, he anoints David as the next king of Israel, and that causes David's brothers to be jealous, and, and they reject him too. And so you just see David walking through this really tough time, and I was like, there's no way that he wrote Psalm 23 here. And so I was like, all right, let's keep reading. And we see what happens next. It's probably a very popular story that all of us have heard before, but the story of David and Goliath, right? Next in David's life, he slays this giant that nobody else could defeat. He has this great victory. And then not only that, we see after he defeats Goliath, that King Saul actually invites David to live in his home with him. And Saul becomes like a father to David. And Jonathan Saul's son becomes like a brother to David, and eventually David marries one of Saul's daughters, and so Saul actually becomes his father-in-law, and so we see David win this great victory over Goliath, and then he kind of gets like a second family, right? So things are looking better for David, and as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, all right, maybe, maybe he wrote Psalm 23 here, right? Things are better. He just slayed a giant. You know, okay, it's, it seems like things are like a green pasture, still waters. Things are going great, but if you know what happens next, you see that's not the case because then Saul becomes jealous of David and literally tries to kill him with a spear. And man, I don't know what your relationship looks like with your in-laws, but I guarantee, I'd say it's a safe bet, none of them have ever tried to kill you before. I mean, I, I don't know, but I guarantee that none of your in-laws have ever tried to do that before. Mine haven't, at least that I know of. And so we see, once again, that David is rejected, right? And not only that, he has to start running for his life because Saul is trying to hunt him down with the armies of Israel and, and kill him. And so he's sleeping in caves and sleeping in the wilderness. And, and once again, as I'm reading this, I'm like, there's no way that David wrote Psalm 23 at this point in his life. If I was David, I wouldn't write it here because how could I say that I'm lying down in a green pasture when I'm sleeping in a cave, Right? And so I struggled with this again. I was like, okay, there's no way David wrote it here. I wouldn't write it here, but let's just keep reading the story. And so we see what happens next is that David eventually becomes the king of Israel. And that happens because Saul and his son Jonathan are killed in battle, right? And you, you think that David might rejoice at that news. He might be happy about it because he no longer has to be homeless. He can return home and no one's trying to kill him. But what we see in the Bible is that David is actually really upset at the news. That he grieves like he lost a father, like he lost a brother. And I don't know if any of you here today can relate to that. Maybe you've lost a, a loved one, a family member, a, a close friend, but could you say in that kind of pain that you would write these verses that you lack nothing and that everything is a green pasture? And so once again, I, I just struggled through this and tried to figure out, like, if I was David, would I write this? And, and once again, I don't know that I would. But like I said, in the story, David eventually does become the next king of Israel. And he is the opposite of what Saul was as a leader. He is a good leader who makes great choices. He is obedient to God, and he leads Israel into a time of great prosperity. He wins many battles. And so I'm like, okay, maybe he wrote 
Psalm 23 here, right? He is established as a king. Israel is winning all these victories. It would make sense for him to write these verses here that he lacks nothing and that, you know, everything is a still water. But as you read the Bible and read the story of David, you see even as he is the king of Israel and he's winning all these battles and the nation is prospering, you see all of these bad things continue to happen to him. And, and, and man, it seems like things are just starting to stack up against David. And, and I don't know if you guys have ever felt that way in your life, but we see when he becomes king, he makes a huge mistake. And y'all probably heard the story of David and Bathsheba, right? He commits adultery and then murders someone to try to cover it up. And so he has to live with the shame of that choice. And then not only that, these next things that, that happened to David in his life, man, I, I wouldn't wish this on anybody, and I, <laughs> I don't even know how someone could walk through this kind of pain, and if these things have ever happened to you, man, my heart just breaks for you, but we see in the story of David that, that he loses a newborn child, and man, I don't know how David ever could have written these verses in Psalm 23, because if I'm being honest, that is a kind of pain that I don't know I could ever walk through. I mean, I have a three-year-old daughter, and I just, I can't imagine losing her, and so David writing these verses just doesn't make sense to me, and then you keep reading the story, and, and not only that, but we see that eventually one of David's daughters gets raped, and once again, I'm just struggling with this. I'm like, how could David write these verses when all of these things are just stacking up against him? How could he say that he lacks nothing when he's lacking one of his children? And so I really struggled through this. And as I was struggling through it, God kind of raised some questions in my mind. And then he kind of helped answer them. And I think they're good questions. And, and I want to ask them today. And then I want to take some time to try to answer them. And the first one is, I mean, what even is contentment? As we look at the Bible, what is contentment? And then the second thing is, can we be content when things are bad? Can we have contentment when it seems like things are just stacking and piling up against us? Can we find contentment? And so I want to take some time to kind of answer those questions today. And, and I want to start by what contentment is. I want to start by saying what contentment is isn't. And, and I think contentment definitely isn't settling in our circumstances, right? Contentment isn't just saying, oh, okay, it was, it was God's will for these bad things to happen to me, and I just have to be okay with that. And I would just like to apologize. If you're in here today, and, and you've ever walked through something that was incredibly difficult and, and painful, and someone told you something like this, that, oh, you just have to be okay with that and just settle with that. It must have been God's will for that to happen to you. And can I just tell you today, that's probably the dumbest thing that I have ever heard. Because I just, I want to encourage you with the fact today that God is not okay with evil things happening to us. And I want you to know that it is okay to, to grieve and it is okay to be angry and it is okay to be upset when bad things happen to us. Because as we see in the Bible, God himself grieves with us he is angry at, at sin and, and death and evil in his creation. And evil was never a part of his original design for 
the world. Like we can go back to, to Genesis 1 and, and see what God's intention was for the world, that he created everything to be good and he created us to be his image to the world and to bring life to the world and there was no death and no sin and that was his design for the world. But we know the story of what happened that, that you know, Adam and Eve chose to sin and brought evil into the world and, and if we're honest, you know, sometimes we bring evil into the world ourselves with our own choices. And so the question I want to ask is, if evil wasn't a part of God's design, what is his response to it? And, and I think David got this. And, and I think this is why he was able to write these verses in Psalm 23. And I think that it's this. God's response to evil in his world, the first response is he wants to grieve with us. He wants to be upset with us. He wants to know that, he wants us to know that it is okay to grieve and be angry. He wants to walk with us in that. And David got this. I think that David got this. And that's why he was able to write these verses in Psalms 23. Because we read other Psalms where David points to this fact. Like, for example, Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And so we see that David says, you know, when I am broken, God is close to me. And then not only that, he writes in Psalm 18, he says, in my distress, in my trouble, I called to the Lord. I cried to him for help. And from his temple, he heard my cry. And the earth trembled and quaked and the mountains shook and he, they trembled because he was angry. Right? God is not okay when evil happens to us because it was never his design for those things to happen. And so we see that he's close to us when we are broken and he is angry at evil that happens to us. But I think the best example of how God responds to these things in our lives is found in John 11. And you might know the story of Jesus and Lazarus, um, how Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. But when Jesus arrives on the scene in John chapter 11, he finds Mary and Martha and all of the family of Lazarus are grieving and crying. And what we see Jesus do, I think, is the best example of how God responds to us in our pain. And, and John 11:35 is the shortest verse in the entire Bible. It's only two verses, but it shows us what Jesus did in this moment. And it literally says these two words, that Jesus wept, right? Not that he was just a little bit upset at death in his creation, but he like ugly cried at the fact that death was a part of his creation. He cried along with Mary and Martha, and he wants to do the same with us. And so I think I can say with confidence that contentment has nothing to do with settling in our circumstances because God himself is not settled with the things that happen to us. And so before I move into what contentment is, I just kind of want to challenge us with this, with this thought really quick, and, and, and it's this. If we allow our circumstances to be the shepherd of our lives, if, if we let our circumstances dictate our reactions and our relationships and our emotions, if our circumstances are the shepherd of our lives, we're going to be paralyzed and unable to move forward. We're going to be paralyzed by unforgiveness and bitterness, and we're going to be unable to move forward 
in our lives. And so I want to just give a definition of, of what I think contentment is by studying the Bible and these verses in Psalm 23. And, and I think this is the best definition for contentment. That contentment is found by actively walking with our shepherd. Right? We, we know in the Bible it says that Jesus is the good shepherd. But not only is he a, a good shepherd, but he is a shepherd who has overcome this fallen world. We know based off of what the Bible says that he's overcome sin, he's overcome death, he's overcome evil. And, and how did he do this? I just want to take a couple of seconds to, to look at some verses in Colossians 1. And it starts in verse 19. And it, it talks about how Jesus has overcome all of the evil and, and the sin in the world. And this is what it says. It says that, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, talking about Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And, and once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Without blemish and free from accusation. And so we see this picture that our shepherd, that, that Jesus has overcome our own sin, our own evil. He's overcome this fallen world. And that gives us hope. And not only that we are reconciled to a relationship with God once again, but we see in Scripture how Jesus is reconciling the entire world. And so I just want to take a second just to read a couple verses, verses out of Revelation 21. And it paints a picture for us of how Jesus is reconciling not only our own relationship to God, but the entire world in general. And, and this is what it says. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, the, the new Jerusalem, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And this is the key right here. He says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old things will have passed away. He who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And, and so we see through these verses that not only has Jesus reconciled us to a relationship with God, but eventually the entire world is going to be reconciled. We're going to have an eternity with Jesus where there's going to be no pain or death or mourning, and Jesus has purchased that for us through his blood shed on the cross, but I want to be careful today to, to not just give us hope for the future, not just to say, oh, contentment is I just have to hold on here until Jesus returns, and then I can see these things in Revelation 21, because that's not contentment, and we can have hope for today. And so earlier this week, Roger and his wife, Erin, they, they came over to our house, had dinner with us, and I kind of got to talk with him about this sermon, and uh, man, don't tell him I said this, but sometimes I think his wife, Erin, 
might be a little bit wiser and, and smarter than he is. And I think we could probably say that about most of the wives in the room today. I could say that about my wife. But she was talking to us, and, and, and she made this point that, that I want to share with you today. And she was talking about how shepherds today, like people who still shepherd today, one of the things they do before they take their sheep anywhere, they go before the sheep and make sure that everything is safe, make sure everything is okay, and that it's good for the sheep to come there. And so she tied it to how Jesus is doing the same thing for us, right? We read in scripture that he is going before us to prepare a place for us, but not only that, we know by the Holy Spirit that he is walking with us every step of the way there. And so once again, contentment is walking with our shepherd. And, and I think David got this. And so I think when we read these verses in Psalm 23, when, when David's talking about a, a green pasture and still waters, he's not talking about the circumstances in his life, because as we read through his life, that, that possibly can't be the case. He can't say that his circumstances are a green pasture or that his circumstances are a still water. I think what David is getting at, and the better way to read these verses, is to say that God is our green pasture, that God himself is our still water, and because he never changes and because he never fails, we can take such hope and that, that by walking with him, he is always going to be our green pasture. And by walking with him, he is always going to be our still water. And we know by those verses that we just read a couple minutes ago that Jesus has purchased that for us. He's given that access. He's given access to us for that relationship once again. And he's done that through the Holy Spirit who is with us. And not only that, but he's done it through this church, through Restore Church, and through the capital C church, the, the entire church, right? Because not only did God reconcile us to once again have a right relationship with him, but he has reconciled us to once again be his image to the world, to show the goodness of God to the world and to each other as a church. And, and so I just want to challenge us with, with this today, that that God has not reconciled us to just sit around and, and wait for him to return. That, that he has reconciled us to once again be his image to the world and to each other. And, and so I want to I close today with, with just an illustration. And, and, and this is it. I, I just want you to, to picture for a second that you're about to, to go into a courtroom for, for like a, a final verdict. And, and as you go in, you know that you cannot lose. There, there's no way that you can lose. Everything is in your favor. It's all going to play out amazing. And so you walk into that courtroom with confidence that you can't lose. But when, once you get in there, you see your adversary. He's sitting across the room for you, and he knows that you can't lose. And so he's going to start lying to you, and he's going to try to convince you that things aren't going to play out the way you think they're going to play out, that you could actually lose, and he's going to try to convince you to settle, right? He's going to tell you, let's just settle. Things aren't going to play out the way you think, so let's just settle. Let's just settle. And, and what are you going to do in that moment? Like, you know you can't lose, but your adversary is trying to lie to you and get you to settle. What are you going to do? And I think we all know the answer to that question, but if we're being honest, we are faced with this scenario every single 
day as Christians, right? We know what Jesus has done for us, how he has purchased a right relationship with God for us, but we have an enemy who is trying to convince us that we can lose. He's trying to convince us to, to just settle, and, and so it might sound something a little bit like this. Maybe, maybe you're here today, and, and you're drowning in debt. And so he's just going to whisper to you, oh, you know, you have all this debt. You are, you know, you're broken. Just, just settle. There's nothing you can do in this world today. Just settle. You can't make a difference. You can't fight your way out of this. Just, just settle. You can't do anything about that. Or, or maybe it sounds something like this, you know, maybe, maybe you found out that you're infertile. And, and he's trying to lie to you and whisper in your ear, yeah, you're, you're definitely broken. There is no way that you can make a difference in the world today. Don't even try. Don't, don't become a, a foster parent and, and help other children. You're, you're broken. Just settle. Just settle. Or, or maybe, maybe you're in here today and, and your husband walked out on you. And maybe you're divorced and he's trying to whisper in your ear, oh, that's going to be the story of your life. You're going to be a single parent. Just settle. You can't make a difference in the world. You're broken. Just settle. Or... Or maybe you're here today and, man, maybe you were, you were raped. And, and maybe he's trying to whisper to you, yeah, you're, you're utterly broken. You can have no hope of, of making a difference in this world. Just, just settle. You're broken. And, man, we see that we have an adversary who's trying to get us to settle. And, and we know from what the Bible says that he is a liar and a thief and he's come to kill and destroy. But we also see in the Bible that Jesus has come to give us life and life to the fullest, right? We know that we can trust that Jesus has reconciled us back to God, that we are not broken, that we have a restored relationship. And not only that, we have a Savior who is walking with us every single day. And so we can say when our enemy rises against us with these accusations, we can tell him to shut his mouth because Jesus has already shut it for him. We know that we can't lose because of who our shepherd is. He is a green pasture and a still water and we can't lose. Even what the enemy means for evil against us, God can use for good. We can't lose. And so like I said, walking actively with our shepherd, with Jesus on a daily basis is where we're going to find our contentment because of who he is and what he has done for us. And so I want to close today by just reading some verses. They're pretty popular verses. I'm, I'm sure you've heard one of these verses before. And they're written by a, go, a guy na named Paul, the Apostle Paul. And he's a guy like David who had a, a lot of ups and a lot of downs in his life. But he writes these verses in Philippians 4 where he gives us the, the secret to contentment. And, and I kind of want to just read those verses to close out our time today. And, and this is what he wrote. He wrote, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. The circumstances don't matter, whatever they are. I have learned to be content. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content 
in any and every situation, whatever the circumstances are, they don't matter, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And this is what he says. I can do all of this, whatever happens to me, whatever the circumstances, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. By walking with my shepherd on a daily basis, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And and we can echo those words that Paul says if we will make the choice to walk with Jesus on a daily basis. We will find contentment in that relationship. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for who you are and, and what you've done for us, that you are the, the good shepherd, and, and not only a, a good shepherd, but you're an overcoming, uh, overcoming shepherd. You've overcome the world and sin and evil and, and, and death, and man, we're just so thankful that we have the ability to have a relationship with you, that, that you care enough about us to have a relationship with us, and just teach us how to walk with you on a, on a daily basis, that we would seek you first and above everything else, because in our relationship with you is where we are going to find our greatest contentment, and so just teach us how to do that, Lord. Teach us how to do that together as a church, that we can show each other you to, to each other, that we can be the example of you, God, to each other on a daily basis, and Man, we we praise you and, and we love you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.